Greetings, Princeps, and welcome to the 36th episode of the God Engine Cast, a weekly podcast dedicated to discussing the Adeptus Titanicus wargame produced by Games Workshop. In this week's show, we will be discussing the new Adeptus Titanicus sourcebook, Crucible of Retribution, the story of the Cataclysm of Iron. I'm just going to asterisk this here. If I call this book the Crucible of Iron, it's because the book can't make it in mind of what it's called and references all the events within it as the Crucible of Iron. So, that said, let's get on with the show. Uh, we're going to go do the news and stuff first. Uh, before we really get on to the show, I just want to touch on a few points. I would really appreciate any additional support listeners could give me. Please like and review the show, or even throw a few dollars in my tip jar at my Ko-Fi account, the links to which can be found in the show notes or on the posts around social media. Please follow my show on the various social medias, from uh, my Instagram, God Engine Cast, to Facebook, which is the God Engine Cast. I'm also active in many Facebook groups. Uh, I'm going to skip... News, community news this week, as basically I've been watching the election results here in the United States, and it's kind of eaten my week. So, hopefully by next week I'll have an idea what's going on in the world. Um, But yeah, until then, let's just get on with the main review. Oh, one final quick thing. I did get a copy of the uh, Open War cards, and I'll be covering them also in this book review. So, that'll come up here in a minute as well. So my plan for the review of this episode is fairly simple. I'm going to open here in a second with what I think is my basic opinions of the book and where it fits into the greater scheme of the game and actually its development within the Games Workshop studios. I'm then going to go through each chapter and talk a bit more about it. The exception there is I'm not going to cover the story again. Uh, as I said in last week's podcast, it's not really my place to go digging into the exact ins and outs of the story. I want you to go and buy the product I'm talking about um, in general. Um, and if you really want to know the story without picking up the book, there are other locations you can go. I'm not going to become the avenue to recite those stories. It's not what this podcast's about. That said... I thought about that long and hard, particularly for this book. I think this is the first Titanicus book I'm not going to recommend everyone buy. This book is... I don't want to say superfluous. Superfluous isn't the right word. It does have a place in the broader hobby. I just fear that unless you are playing one of the Titan Legions from this book. You don't need it. You don't even need it if you're collecting a nice household from this book, because, as I said in my review of Defensive Riser, you're going to use the Allegiance traits to generate uh, your abilities anyway, because they're better. I mean, I haven't read individually each of the uh, Knight traits, but it's going to be a hard time to find ones better than Defensive Riser. So, yeah. So, who else would want this book? Well, the answer is event organizers and the one friend in every group who's going to organize game days. There are lots of good missions in this book, but you can need one copy between several friends. You aren't going to need a lot of these on every table. It's going to be a reference sheet for some really interesting missions to play. And that's a good thing. We needed more of that in Titanicus. They're sort of nondescript, they aren't pure narrative, they're actually balanced, they're designed to be even-sided. Um, and I'll get to them when I review the Glory of War, but they have a place in this hobby. But the whole book has this really odd feeling to it. And the odd feeling about this book started way back in February when Shadow and Iron dropped. Back when Shadow and Iron dropped... We also had the release of the Warbringer and the transfers for several Legios that are in this book, or at least the Legio Incarnum. And that caught everyone off guard. Usually the books that come out have the associated transfers, or it had been for the case of uh, Doom Molech and um, Titan Death. 
Now, obviously, Titan Death, while not written at the same time as the main rule book, was written pretty much on the heels of the closing of that project. In my opinion, they went straight from writing the core book and getting that published straight into Titan Death. Titan Death and Duomolek. They both have this feel of... They both feel like the studio was still trying to get to grips with the game. And they were. I mean, they had to just by the times they were published. Neither of those books could have been written when the masses started playing Titanicus. So they were written blind. But then we had a good break. Titanicus dropped in 2018. So, you know, 2020 were about the general process length of the book. Or for a book anyway. Um, at the start of 2020. So I have a feeling that what happened was last year, 2019, especially in the early part of 2019, the studio sat down and decided to develop a series of books. They saw Titanicus was taking off, and it really did when Titan Death was put out. Titan Death is when I got on, and a lot of other people got into Titanicus pretty hard. And they looked at what was going on in the world, and they retooled their approach. Obviously, we had the new starter box that came out in the early part of this year. And I reckon the ideas of that started them. The Grand Master set was too big, so they started that process. And I think the three books we got since the new year all came from those initial plans once they saw what happened when Titanicus as a whole was accepted by the community and accepted well. So I also would infer from the content and feel of many of the stories that it, they were all written almost simultaneously. Perhaps not the stories, or quite possibly the stories as well, um, but all the sections. They're all very plug-and-play. Um, outside of the narrative mission set and the rules to the individual legios, and even they're a bit cut and pasty, everything else feels very isolated from the actual content of the book. The campaign structure in Shadow and Iron could be used in Crucible of Retribution just as easily. In fact, the campaign system really feels like it's the uh, Cataclysm of Iron. It's just got that feel to it. I kind of feel that they were writing the campaign system so you could play out the Cataclysm of Iron. Cataclysm of Iron has like all these brand new Forge worlds set up in a way just like you would build in the Shadow and Iron campaign book. But I guess someone made the executive decision that something wasn't strong enough about the Crucible of Iron, the Crucible of Retribution story. In fact, you can tell, because like the story, the book's Crucible of Iron, yet it never occurs in the book, oh, not Crucible of Iron, the book's Crucible of Retribution, but the book refers to it all as the Cataclysm of Iron. It's like warring amongst itself about what exactly it is. And then the story, it's like a thousand miles an hour. It covers some great stuff. But it's over in three paragraphs. It is telling a story in 28 pages that the Horus Heresy novels took 50-something books to tell. The story of the Cataclysm of Iron starts at the outbreak of the heresy. In fact, it starts before that. It starts with the settling of the Belt of Iron and the establishment of these Forge Worlds. It starts in the Great Crusade, and in 28 pages takes you to events that are occurring during the Scouring. It's an incredible amount of time, and it flies through it. You're introduced to a character for that character to die at the end of that story, that little paragraph. Um, the first section's pretty good. You got this goes through all the different worlds and all the key battle zones, and that's actually pretty good writing. And you get into the timeline. And it is like someone has spent 18 pages of book reports. Like, you get a Black Library novel, and you're told to write a three-paragraph story about what happened in that book. And we have that for 18 pages. For each of the events through this Cataclysm of Iron. Now, some of these stories are ones that are a bit like, I probably could skip that book. But others are like, I want to know more. I want to know a lot more. Tell me about these battles. Don't just hint at them. But it provides the outline. 
And if it's the outline to a campaign you plan on running, run, like with the full sh um, Shadow and Iron rules, that even references in the book to use a lot of these battles in Shadow and Iron campaigns. It would make sense. But that just isn't there. It just goes immediately into here are some uh, narrative missions to play some of these battles and a bit more description on those particular battles, which is cool. And then it provides you this set of missions to use in recreating the war if you were to do it in a campaign, which again is neat. But the book's 99 pages long. It's a 100-page book, which seems to be what they're aiming for, for how long they want their Titanicus publications. I mean, to be honest, it's a 100-page book results in about a $35 book over here which is really affordable it's a really good price point so i can't argue with the decision to make pay, uh, the books 35 uh, to make the books 100 pages long like they're doing it seems to be working i just think they got the formulation of content wrong if as my prediction is correct that they made this defensive riser and shadow and iron all at the same time they sat down and plotted which book was going to get which content and I think it was at that point they realised that they were going to have to give her uh, Lidio Incarnum the short end of the stick, which is why those transfers appeared completely out of sync. They didn't want to open up this year's Titanicus releases with that book. It wouldn't have put Titanicus on a firm ground. In fairness to Games Workshop, they did exactly the right thing if they have done it how my brain is suspecting they have. If it hadn't been for the coronavirus, I really think when... Shadow and Iron dropped, we would have just taken off, and there would have been a great, huge community of games being played, really big events. The Adepticon event and the other con events would have all been incredibly successful. And, uh, yeah, I think they would have sold so much more Titans than they sold this year. I mean, I'm sure they sold a lot, but I'm sure it would have been just like a huge success for them. And then this book would have just come out on the giant release wave of all the other detritus they're getting rid of. Or maybe it just slipped away with another release. I don't know. You don't exactly know the, how they would have worked their schedule if it hadn't been for the lockdowns. But they would have got this information out there and it had just been out there and then they could have moved on. But yeah, it's odd. Um, so yeah, back to where I was at the start. I don't rate the story. I, I'm not a huge fan of many of the actual fiction sections of Games Workshop books. Don't get me wrong. I actually find I'd rather read one of the Black Library novels than one of these book summaries they sneak at the front of the book. But at least with Doom and Molech and Titan Death, they were referencing material that were in Black Library books. Like, yeah, it was a book report. It was a book report of a good book. This is a book report of an imaginary book, and that's just weird. Um, so yeah, I mean, if you brought the book, I hope you've really enjoyed it. If you're sitting around working out what you can spend money on, because money's tight this year, I'm going to give you a hint. Skip this. Go and buy a box of knights instead. You'll enjoy them a lot more. But all that said, I think there is value here, so we're going to start reviewing it. I'm going to start with the Titan Legios and the Maniples. I think that's the best place to go next. Once that's done, I'll cover the Glory of War missions, whatever they're called, and then we'll go to the, um, quickly touch on those narrative missions at the end, but uh, less spoken about the narrative of this, the better. I'll talk about it at the end just to close it all off, but yeah, I need to give myself some before I get there. Anyway, let's get on with it. So, I'm going to start the review in the middle of the book with the reviews of the Legios. There are eight Legions in this book, which presents the, the highest or joint highest number of Legios in one book after Titan Death. Now, Titan Death kind of beats it as the most Legios because there is one reprint in um, Crucible of Retribution. Um, but I suppose if you don't own the book that that Legio came in, it would be the most Legios in any particular book. So I'm going to quickly go through each one of these Legios and give you my 10 cents on it. I'm really thinking that in the next season, in the new year, I'm going to sit down probably with a guest 
and create a ranking of all these legios um because there is some significant power difference between the legios in the game at the moment and i think it would be good for everyone to have an understanding of where each legio sat power wise anyway let's move forward so first up is the legio astroman the morning stars they are a older legio that's always had a basis in this area of the belt of iron or at least they put all the dots together to form it up they're a pretty interesting little legio they only have one legio trait two stratagems and one piece of war gear um in general i have to say legio astroman got the short end of the stick their primary legion trait is kind of poor basically when you activate a Titan, you can basically let the uh, Titan automatically take a Machine Spirit check and fail. So you get a Machine Spirit roll. It's always going to be Stalwart, and you're going to generate two Heat in addition to that. So for two Heat, you're going to get a chance to make an Emergency Repair. But you're going to give up your movements, and you're also not going to be able to activate in the Combat Phase. Yeah, this is supposed to represent the fact they have tenacity and refusal to yield. And I suppose are really good at repairing the Titans. Um, I just don't see this coming up much. I mean, essentially, you're going to give up a Titan's entire turn to pull off an extra repair. I mean, you throw that in with a emergency repair order and then a standard repair phase... And they've got a stratagem, um, sorry, I mean a personal trait in the Princeps check that allows you to automatically pass the emergency repairs check. So, you know, you get the idea that they're going to be really good about fixing their Titans, but not because they aren't getting the pluses that, you know, Legio Crucius or Legio Astorum do or the re-rolls. You just be throwing buckets of dice and hoping you're going to roll the right numbers. <sighs> Which is kind of lame, if I'm being honest. It's okay. I mean, it's not terrible. Um, I'll come to some terrible ones in a bit. But it's not top tier. So they have two stratagems. The first one is weird. It's a one-point stratagem. You can only take it once. And when you were to activate a titan in the strategy phase, so instead of taking an order, you can play the stratagem. And it allows the titan to stand firm and means that you do not get bonuses to army rolls because of damage so you don't get a plus three if you're hollowed out but it counts your activation in the strategy phase so you don't get to make an emergency repair order that's the sound of me ruining my temples um that's just the better thing to do if you've got a caught out titan you're so close to critical damage you need to be making emergency repair orders um if you're going to do anything in the strategy phase unless you've got a different plan in which case you've probably got a different order you want to do um and then the Legio Pacific Stratagem, the other one they've got is called Stand Firm, which allows you to merge Void Shields even if you aren't in a squadron. Ah, it's pretty good. Merging Void Shields is actually pretty useful. The problem is a three-point stratagem, which is pretty big, and it only lasts for one turn. Um, which is... yeah. Um, oh, and you can't have moved with the titans you've got to be standing still which is the big theme of this legio it's okay um the war gear is the one shining light though i mean maglock shells for five points per dice on a weapon with ordnance you get to basically give them plus one strength it's pretty useful um it's plus one on armor rolls but that effectively means plus one strength. Uh, that really makes some of the macro Gatling weaponry really good. Uh, pushes their strength into that band where it's going to cause a lot of damage to stuff. You're getting usually a lot of dice with those. So it is fairly expensive. It does mean the Viva Gatling Blaster is a 30 point upgrade. But 30 points of plus one strength, which you then could boost up some more with, you know, experimental weaponry and stuff, isn't terrible. The personal traits are fairly good and actually play into the themes. As I said earlier, they've got one that allows you to do emergency repair orders without command check. Another one that allows you to pick whatever you roll on a machine spirit, if you go to get a machine spirit roll, which is okay. 
And then the final one's an immovable bastion, which basically means if you're charged, you can smash attack back or punch them with a fist if you've got one, which isn't bad. A very good defensive legio in theme. The rules are a little lackluster. I really wish they'd had another trait, perhaps get rid of one of the stratagems and give them a, a decent trait that helps with rerolls or armor values or something. Um, maybe it just gives them a trait that allows them to repair armor levels. I know it's a bit usually reserved for psychic magics and stuff, but something along that regard. Um, they need a, they need something else to really click. Um, I know there's a few Astroman players out there, and I hope you do well with this, and I hope you enjoy using the rules. It's not one I'm keen to play myself. Next up is the Legio Ultrusionist, the Firebrands, and I've covered these already on my podcast. I did that listener question, and they really haven't fixed them. Uh, a bit like the Legio Astroman, there is a problem with them. Um... Their initial Legio trait of seizing the initiative just isn't really that useful. They have changed the rules of the Infernus missiles from the last time Legio Ultrusius was in a book, so clarification will be needed about what set of rules is correct. Either way, the Inferno mission missiles aren't really that great, so I doubt we'll see them on the table much, so it's not a huge issue. Um, yeah, they're an okay Legio. It's a shame again. They really could do with the second Legio trait just to give them something a little extra. Um, ideally, something awesome they can do by seizing the initiative to make it worthwhile that they do it. But, yeah, they don't, and an opportunity to fix it was presented, and they didn't take it. So let's move on. Next up is Legio Incarnum. Legio not appearing in this episode. Don't worry, they will be coming soon. I've got an entire two-episode run of reviews lined up for Legio Incarnum. Legio Incarnum, my favourite Legio. This book has done nothing to dissuade that fact. They've got some kick-ass rules. In fact, they're probably a top-tier Titan Legion. This warms my heart. But we need to move on. I'm not going to go into details because I could gush about them for a while. And I will. And I'll do that in a different show. So, yeah. Moving on. Then we have the Legio Venator, the Iron Spiders. Now this Legio, I think, are pretty new. Um, they have some awesome colour plates. If you've not seen them, go look at them. They're this, like, bl black scheme with white armour panels. That, like, everything's really dark. But they've got these white panels with, like, spider web designs all over them. I mean, obviously, the, the Iron Spiders, this very sort of good theme. And it just looks really good. I really like them. And they are a particularly good Titan Legion on the game table. They do something that would be against the rules in a custom Legio, and to be honest, always marks out a Titan Legion as something special. They have three Legio traits. The first Legio trait is called Loyalty Above All, and is fairly minor, so it doesn't matter so much. But basically, it doesn't matter if your Princeps is wounded, it has no effect. Uh, the second two are the really useful two. One allows you to form squadrons at the beginning of every round. Uh, the squadron has to only can only be of up to two titans, but you can reform them every round. It's like every maniple becomes a lupercal maniple with a cap of two titans. Really fun if you were to take something like the Corsair maniple. Like, hey, look, I've got five reavers, and they're going to decide what manner of three we're going to take. Or I could take an extremist maniple and do the same. You know, I could take two extremist maniples. And you're thinking to yourself, how can you take that many warlords? Well, here's the answer. The second trait is called Mobile Force. They can swap out any warlord titan for a reaver titan. So if I was running this particular group, I would think long and hard about taking two, three reaver exterminus maniples. I would then make really good use of the Legio trait that allows you to squadron. I could have four activations every turn, virtually guaranteed for a while. And I have six Reavers on the table with weaponry that is going to be really hurting when I decide to push that reactor. I'm sure a Reaver's reactor isn't as good for the heat as a Warlord's is, so the Exterminus' downside starts showing up some more. But, yeah, it'd be real scary. 
But there are other fun things you could do. I mean, you could go many directions with like the um, any combination of the Warlord and Reaver uh, manifolds. There are a few of them out there. You could just make all Reaver and again have something very similar to a Corsair. I think I'm hesitant to say they're the best Legio out there, but they're going to give. Give good players or players who really want to put some time into thinking about Reaver strategies a solid, solid uh, workforce. Um, yeah, really good. Finally, they have a piece of war gear called the Blind Launchers, which don't replace your Apocalypse Missile Launcher. Uh, they're just a attachment. And basically, once per game, they can pop smoke, like the old 40k rule, and they get a minus one to hit. Any type can do it, and they can do it whenever they feel like doing it. So, you know, again, that giant reaver mana pool filled with close combat or short range excursionist weapons charge up the table pop smoke that first turn it's all pretty good okay so now it's time to talk about the traitor titan legios so as expected we'll start seeing the close combat legios because the rules are still written in that way the first legio is legio lanciscaria or as i refer to them from now on is the impalers they are okay. They have two good traits and uh, one piece of war gear and a pretty good stratagem. So the first trait allows a Impaler's Titan to move without pushing the reactor or move at full speed without pushing the reactor. It's really good. Um, it is diminishing returns because it is one Titan and it's one Titan in the battle group, which means if you run like a 8,000 point game and you're all Impalers, you're only going to get one Titan doing the boosted movement. Whereas if you were to just drop one Impaler's Titan into a battle group that is predominantly another legio that titan will always be moving faster so definitely leads in the direction of being a good support titan uh the second legio trade is called bullish it allows you to once you've made a charge order also do smash attacks in addition to your close combat attack um that's pretty good um it's just an added extra to make those close combat charges even better as i said it's not surprising this is a traitorous titan legion and when combined with the rules that traitor titans get it's pretty good um there are other two pieces is a stratagem which basically is a one point stratagem you get to play it and all impalers titans can charge without making a charge order that turn which is real nice and the other one is a weird type of ceramic army you can take that means uh Basically, plasma weaponry, or any weapon with a maximal fire trait, which includes experimental weapons if you stick a trait on through stratagems, uh, suffer a minus one to all armor penetration rolls when targeting that titan. It's pretty useful because it affects all the time you're shot at with a weapon with that trait, even if they're pushing, even if they aren't pushing for maximal fire. So it really takes the edge off plasma weaponry when you want when the enemy isn't running hot. Um, but it is worth like 10 points per titan, so mileage will vary greatly depending on your local meta. I do want to take a moment to talk about their paint scheme. It's really good. It's like a silver trim with a deep red and this like turquoise with this weird like repeating chevron pattern that kind of calls in some sort of uh, Maori tribal markings, at least in my head. Um, it's all pretty cool. Rope work kind of. I don't know. They look really, visually really striking. Um, Going to be a pain to paint, uh, which is the same with a lot of these patterns on these Titans. Um, I'll save that for the Incarnum episode. But um, yeah, pretty cool Titan Legio. A pretty solid traitorous Titan Legio. Um, yeah. Next we have the Legio Calusticaria? Question mark, question mark, question mark. I don't know. Otherwise referred to as the Gatekeepers. Um... Gatekeepers suffer the same problem as Legio Astromenders. They are a pretty lackluster legion in this book. I'm just going to be blunt about it. They have one Legio trait. It's called Callus. And they never suffer penalties um, or for command checks. And they may avoid any effects that makes them re-roll successful orders. Yeah, that's it. I mean, there are a lot of reasons for that to be in the game now. There's lots of ways to influence people's orders checks. So it's pretty good. But if you play an opponent that doesn't do any of those shenanigans, it's not going to come up. And any Legio trait that doesn't come up during a game is kind of bad. Now, it is one step better than the Legios whose only trick is to uh, push leadership issues on you. 
because you just ignore them, and that means both of you sit around with rules that do nothing. Yeah, it's annoying. Um, they've got two stratagems, and they're okay. Uh, one stratagem allows you to add additional range to short range of weaponry, which is useful if you've got a short range weapon that has a difference in ability to hit or something, or you want to get a melter cannon in range. But you can only do that on a Titan that hasn't moved, so I don't know. There seems to be no point in it, um, but it is one point. So It's called Steadfast Bastion, perhaps you're sitting on an objective or something. Um, there are other strategies methodical advance. It allows you to move up the table quicker. Essentially, you pick a Titan scale, and all Titans of that scale can make a normal move during the initial strategy phase. But that's their activation in the strategy phase. You can't give them any orders. You couldn't give them, like, full stride. Which is okay, I suppose, if you were planning on moving them again and then having them shoot in the first turn. But it's not that great if you could just full stride them and you get another movement and probably you get a better movement because you could push the reactors. They have one piece of war gear called the Accelerated Autoloader. They only work for Apocalypse missile launchers. They cost 20 points per launcher. So... A fair bit but they allow you to fire again in one turn once per game and that second shot is done at a minus one so if you're in the corridor of a war lord with the auto loaders you're going to face 20 apocalypse missile shots with the second 10 having an additional minus one to hit and if this is in the first turn and you're at long range that's still going to be a lot of hits and it will destroy the shields of a lot of stuff but I'm not sure it's worth 20 points. I don't know, maybe if it's your plan, maybe it'll work pretty well with Methodical Advance, you'll be able to move up and get the ranges just right. But it's kind of, mm, I'm not sure, not that great. So next up is the Dark Tide. Now this uh, particular Legio and the next Legio are written so they are primarily a Black Shield Legio. Though as usual, Legions don't automatically have an allegiance, so they can be used as both Loyalist or Traitor. Uh, I definitely think there is a definite traitorous undertone to them, and I could see them working for the forces of the War Master, especially in other conflicts. Anyway, the Legio Tritonis, or the Dark Tide, have two Legio traits. The first one's a really fun one. It's called Tide of Iron. Um, they can replace any Reaver Titan in a mana pool with a Warlord. This is hilarious. You can do some really fun combinations. I mean, the one that jumps to my brain straight away is... Placing the Reavers in a Corsair, so you can have a really heavy Corsair maniple, and that'd be really fun. But there are a lot of other good places to throw additional uh, Warlords. So even the standard Axiom maniple suddenly rocks three Warlords and two Warhounds. It's a very cool combination. Um, the, uh, yeah, it's just any time you replace Titans with Legion, it's just a really good place to be. Um... Additionally, their second trait is called Revel in the Slaughter. Um, you can add one to the command checks of a Titan if they previously destroyed an enemy Titan, which is really good. So as you get your smaller Titans, as they start killing enemy Titans, being the one landing the killing shot, their command just gets better and better. Um, I'd say it's really good. It's good. It's a solid rule. Um, it counters a lot of shenanigans that other people can pull up giving you negatives to command values but it does reward late game play so it, yeah it, it's subtle but compared to the primary trait of just switching in warlords it's yeah uh the legion specific stratagem is a weird rule which kind of points to them having a much you know traitorous side perhaps that um, tech adepts would run forward and sell off these Veil developers called Stygian Veils. It's called Stygian Veils, the name of the stratagem. And they place these markers around the table, and when you're within one of those markers, you take a command penalty, or within so many inches of the marker, you take a command penalty, and they actually block line of sight when trying to see through them. Which is pretty neat. I mean, they can only go down once per game, and it's a two-point stratagem. But, you know, there's some depth to it. Additionally, they can swap out their Apocalypse missile launchers, for uh, radioact to have radioactive warheads, and they basically act like the static shells of Legio Infector. When you roll to six to hit on a uh, 
to shoot, when you roll a six to hit against enemy void shields, they count as two hits, which is kind of neat. Um, overall, I really like this little force. Um, obviously, a lot of folk are going to focus primarily on that Tide of Iron trait because they can just rock so many warlords. But, you know, the stratagem and... Uh, War gear is pretty good. I mean, three extra warheads has a place. I mean, everyone kind of liked the static shells. The additional six, the six exploding to cause more hits to voids is just really useful. And on a weapon like a uh, Apocalypse Missile Launcher that has a high weight of fire, it's even better. Um, Revel in the Slaughter, their other trait isn't terrible, as I said. Like, getting additional pluses to the command checks isn't bad in the long term. I mean, ironically, though, it's less useful for the Warlords. Which is why I sort of, the Axiom Maniple sort of comes to mind. Sort of a place where you can get that nice mix of Warlords and Warhounds. But there are plenty of others. There are some actual light Maniples that use a combination of Reavers and Warhounds. And swapping out the Reavers in those would be pretty fun, I think. Um, yeah. It's pretty good. I like it. Um, not the strongest, but definitely not the weakest. Yeah, so moving on. Finally, we have the Unbroken Lords, um, representing a Titan Legio that's kind of been ignored by both sides for just being crushed underfoot. They're, they're a pair of Legio traits, which having two Legio traits automatically gives you a bit of a leg up in the power or the arms race that is um, Titan Legio rules. But their rules are kind of meh, if I'm being truthful. The first one's called uh, Trifling Pain. It basically means uh, you can choose to ignore a single piece of critical damage uh, each turn, which is useful. I mean, theoretically, if your only point of critical damage is a reactor leak, you just don't have a reactor leak. Uh, you can ignore a princeps wounded. You could ignore a void shield burnout, I suppose. Um, it's not bad. Uh, also, they can repair critical damage quicker, so their titans are just going to be hardier. The Legion trait Envious is an interesting one. They get a bonus to command checks if they can see an enemy Titan that is the same size or larger than them. As they're sort of envious of the equipment they have, which they've been deprived because they've been cut off from both sides. Um, I like it. You're nearly always going to be able to get a plus one command check in most games. It's going to make you want to play a little bit more aggressively, perhaps, and will help you in crunch situations. But it's not game-breaking. As I've said several times, getting a plus one or plus two... It's not going to be. It's not going to affect the warlords because their command checks are so good, and warhounds have pretty good command values anyway. So you're not going to get a huge amount of benefit out of it. The leader specific stratagem is okay. Um, basically, they can just play a three point. It well, basically it's a three point stratagem called endurance beyond limits, and. You get to play it at the start of any strategy phase, and then you can go through all of your titans, making a repair roll of, with half your servitor clades. Okay. I mean, half your servitor clades is not great on a warhound or warlord, but it's a free roll. So it's not terrible and doesn't cost you anything. Um, pretty useful when he's just starting that turn when you know things are going to be pretty bad. The Legion Pacific War Gear is a thing called Secondary Plating. Basically, it downgrades that first critical hit to a devastating hit, um, which is okay. I mean, I think in there are some places that's just going to turn it into a critical again. Um, for example, if you take a, dev a devastating hit that fills your track up, you're going to get that critical hit regardless because there's no way to avoid getting it. Um, but other than that, yeah, it's okay. Um, and there's not a huge amount to say about this, Lee Joe. They're okay. They sort of a very mid-tier list. They're not that great. Um, they got a fun color scheme, a purple and bone, that makes me think of the Empress Children for some reason, but it's just a nice bone and purple tie up really well together. I would actually probably would rather the colors be inverted. The purple's the primary color with bone being the secondary. Uh, I know back in the day I painted Blood Angels with the same palette, but I had it the other way around. Um, you kind of want the purple can be a bit overwhelming. That's my feel looking at them. But uh, yeah, that's the Unbroken Lords, and that's the end of the Legios. So let's move on. So they are the Legios. Um, I think there are some real standout winners. Uh, obviously, the Incarnum and the Iron Spiders both jump out pretty good. Um, the Impalers aren't terrible, uh, though I think all the Traitor Titan Legions 
are missing something. Um, and obviously the Astro Man and um, Firebrands both, again, they're okay. You can have fun playing them. The rules are going to be useful in a game most of the time, but you're going to have to work to make it work. Uh, things like the Iron Spiders, just lists come together for them. They're real versatile Legio. Um, I realise that I've done the last two books in depth like this covering the Legios, and I've got a lot of Legios I haven't covered. So as I said, I think I'm going to do a quick Legio review show next year, and we'll cover the winners and losers, the really good ones, the really bad ones, and come together some sort of power ranking system, just so everyone's got an idea where I sit with everything. I've got a crazy idea, perhaps, of even going a step further, and for my future events, coming up with bonuses to give people who play the weaker Legios and some handicaps, maybe, for those who play the better Legios. Maybe changing the amount of stratagem points they give when you play them or something. Anyway, moving on. So next up are Manipals. Uh, there are only two of them, and they are on the... That's the lower end of what we normally see in a supplement. Uh, only Duma Molek had two last time and if i'm being honest the two in molek were much better than the two we have in this book we have the ignis light maniple and the prince precept battle line maniple so i'm going to review both of them individually as i've done with all of the maniples so far first up is the ignis light maniple it's the one they shared actually on the community sites so there's not a huge amount of surprises and we've even talked about it a bit on this podcast already um the fluff for it says, designed to spread confusion and disorder, the Ignis Light Maniple is intended for widespread destruction and terror tactics. When resources prove limited, Ignis Maniples will often supplement the strength with attached knight banners. So they're pretty cool. Uh, mandatory components are three wall hound titans and one Serastus knight banner. They can take an optional components of two more warhound titans and two more knight banners. Um, their maniple trait is Scorched Earth. Units with this maniple add plus one dice value to the weapon with a Firestorm trait. In addition, they may re-roll armor saves of one from attacks made with the weapon with the Firestorm trait. And all Serastus Knight banners included when the maniple must be upgraded to Knight Archaeons. In addition, Ignis Light Maniples or banners within six inches of people with this maniple get to pass uh, first fire and full stride orders, providing the same order has been passed by the Titan, um, which is wordy, but it's okay. It's pretty good. I like this maniple, in a way. Um, it all depends how much you want to use the uh, Flamestorm template weaponry. Uh, if you want to use the Flamestorm template weaponry, this maniple is the way forward. It really buffs it, and it's good, because those templates needed a... They needed something. I've talked about how they were a bit lacking in many podcasts and this is a nice simple fix um i'm not sure about it really i mean i don't think you ever want to run a max size lead, uh, one of these maniples we're running three warhounds each with one weapon and a flamer and then one banner or maybe two banners of serastus knights could work um would be a good supporting maniple to throw inside a more sit back and shoot maniple Overall, I rate it as a moderate to fair maniple. I don't think it's great. It's not one of the best, but it's not bad. You're going to have fun playing it. You know what you're going to get yourself in for when you play it. So there's that. Then we have the Princeps Battleline Maniple. Its fluff is that it is a variant of the Axiom Maniple. The Princeps Maniple rose to prominence during the Horus Heresy, where there proved an ever-present need of firepower capable of quickly laying low opposing enemy titans um its mandatory components are one warlord one warbringer one warhound and then its additional uh, components can be one reaver and one warhound so the axiom swapping out a reaver for a warbringer it's okay it's a pretty good maniple to bring a warbringer to the table in its trait is flexible tactics allows you to pick an order at the start of a strategy phase and that the all the maniples can all the titans in that mana pool can make that order on a roll of a 2+, plus, regardless of modifiers, which is nice. Um, yeah, I mean, 
that's okay. I mean, it's probably not as good as the Axiom, and it's on the lower side of power in all the maniples out there, but it has a place in the game. If you were to pick up one Titan, or one box of each one available, so you've got a Warlord, it's a good starting maniple, I suppose-ish. Um, probably not as good as the Axiom. Um, I think an Axiom supported by a Warbringer probably is better than this in a way, but I don't know. It depends what else you're planning on doing um, and what other rules we'll be playing with. So it's got a place. It's just not that great. Um, okay. But it's not terrible. I'm looking at, you know, the Genissary Maniple or something. Um, yeah. Let's just move on. So next up is the Knightly Houses. There are four of them. Having skimmed over the traits, non-jump power to me as being any better than those in Defensive Riser. They're okay. Um, I don't know. As I sort of said when I reviewed Defensive Riser, it's really hard to judge these Knightly Households. I don't see them played a huge amount, and it's just simpler to go different routes if you want to generate the additional Knightly traits. And it's always not that clear about who can generate them anyway. Um, the rules contradict each other and they keep printing the same sections without any thought about it which is a sigh as i just did um i'm gonna move on and cover the rest of the book but yeah they are what they are they're very pretty pictures and again more pictures of knights we don't have rules for yet anyway So then we move into the narrative missions. There are four narrative missions in this book, and they're all okay. I think they suffer from the same problems the narrative missions generally do. Most of them are pretty unique scenarios, which is going to require some pretty unique pieces of scenery, and aren't going to be something you can play quickly. Uh, I look forward to days when many of these are played on YouTube channels, and I get to watch them. Uh, and some of them I definitely will go out my way to play as well. One in particular, and this one I'm going to focus on. Um, if there is a glimmering beacon in this book, there is a two-page spread on page 74 to 75 called The Burning of Malana, the Titan Jewel. Now, the background talks about, you know, how small titans fought, fight these small little games. But what it actually is, is a completely different way to play Titanicus. Um, and it's really fun. It plays on a 3 by 3 uh, both players can only bring up to a thousand points. You cannot take knights, and you cannot bring maniples. So you just bring a thousand points of titans. Um, which means you could theoretically play this with just a Psy Titan. Like, you could bring a Psy Titan, and that'd be your entire force, and you could play Psy Titan versus how many Warhounds will it take to take down a Psy Titan? That's all this mission does. Anyway, um, there's a special rule called Titanic Jewel, and it completely changes how the game plays. Um, in the normal turn sequence, you take it in turns, picking an order. So, two players roll off. Say, for example, they've got two Reavers aside. One player wins, and then he gets to choose. So, one player wins, he activates his Reaver, and he gets to choose to fire, which means he can turn 45 degrees and attack a target as if it was a combat phase. Move as if it was the movement phase. He can charge as if the tight it was the movement phase and the Titan had a charge order. He can make minor repairs, which allows them to make a repair roll as half their servitor clades. Um, or they can make a full emergency repair as if an emergency repair order had been issued. Um, the minor repair also lets you move, so you get to do a little bit of both. Uh, once the titan's been activated, you've got to wait till all your titans have been activated before you can go back to reactivate that titan again. So there's no turn sequence, no end of turns. Um, it will mean that, you know, things like um, critical damage comes up weirdly, but the designer's note say you're going to have to sit down and discuss exactly how things like that will work between you. I really like this idea. Um, it's a fast place, weird way to play Titanicus, and um, I'm all about it. Um, I actually think... This system here is how we could get an AI version of Titanicus built. Um, we've now got a reasonable number of moves. One, two, three, four, five moves. So you could create a pretty good what-if statement for a um, 
sort of artificial intelligence style, like uh, Warhammer Under well, Underworlds, um, like Warhammer Blackstone Fortress does. Um, I'm going to sit down and see if I can come up with a process, or see if there's a process out there that I can borrow. Uh, oh, I know Jackie over in from the Wastelands is working on one, and I think this system's just. It's not going to be a full Titanicus game, but it will play a game much quicker. And I think in these times when people are looking at lockdowns, this mission has a chance of actually being useful. Um, for example, what I would say is, like, if the enemy Titan can draw a line of sight with the majority of its weaponry, it fires. If it cannot, it moves to position itself better. If a it is within... a charge range and it has a melee weapon it will charge if its shields are down it will make a minor repair and move to move, get rid of it move its shields out the way if its shields down and taking critical damage it will attempt to make an emergency repair um so i think you probably could knock one together especially someone skilled in the art of creating single player games this is the mechanics to do it um yeah, I really like it, uh, as I said, and it's the special thing that jumps out at me from these uh, missions. The other missions are okay. They all suffer from the same usual problems, as I said earlier. The, all the missions are imbalanced, and I'm not bringing myself to tell these stories because I don't want to, because I don't have any buy-in with the narrative. I want to do The Last Stand at Magma City from the core book because I've read the book. I'm going to do the battles out of the Legion of uh, Moloch because I've read the book. Same with Titan Death. Those missions mean something. I understand the characters fighting in those battles. These missions just feel a little... Eh. They're here and here's a narrative to say where we're going to play, fight these games. So I'm probably not going to get around to doing it. Especially as we have the next section. Uh, which is a pretty good section. I'm going to skim through it here in a, right now, actually. So the rest of the book is the Echoes of Glory uh, rules, which are really interesting, if I'm being honest. I know I've been fairly dismissive of them so far through this episode, and I've been fairly dismissive of the book. And I don't want to make that... I enjoyed this section of the book. It's really clever. And I've enjoyed every time they've done an Echoes of Glory supplement in other Games Workshop products. So what the Echoes of Glory are, are there ways to generate missions that aren't narrative missions that are a bit more balanced, but they're still going to have flavour, which is what they want. They want this to be a narrative game. That's clearly the, what they're trying to push. So what it has is you basically, when you sit down with your opponent, you've got your list, and you decide the type of game you're going to do. So you roll... Um, a dice to determine what world you're going to fight on, or you can pick. They have Death World, Forge World, and Hive Worlds. And then, once you know what world you're on, they've got then six missions for each of those particular types. Um, which is a lot of missions. That's 36 separate missions. And then you roll, and then you'll have a mission, and each mission has a little write-up about it. I have a deployment map. Most of them are pretty simple deployment maps and some special rules. And all these missions are fairly fun. Um, I sort of skipped through them myself, and like I want to play most of them. My criticism, I'm not going to try and spend too much time um, digging deep into it, is that to get the real good narrative fun out of these missions they want you to have, you need the correct terrain. And all the Death World missions, all six of them, talk about stuff that's you're not going to be able to change up. So, for example, the mission Precipice has a 12-inch gap on the table where there's a giant hole. Or Stronghold, where there's a lava flow that cuts across the table with, like, three large bridges on it. The other two are Ice World and Blittering Sands, where you want the scenery to be icy or sandy. And you're just not going to get that from one terrain collection. You're almost going to have to build the terrain for every one of these battles in the Death World section. And that's less than great. I mean, it's great that they're there, but it's going to take a bit of head scratching to get them implemented right um and it's sort of the same sort of story with the forge world runs where the first one's an underground mission has these big blocked out sections and then you get into more standard like ones you could do with um 
standard terrain you may have, you could probably reuse terrain on many of the other missions. And they're all pretty good. Uh, they're all on Forge by Fours, which is nice. There's no weirdness. They're all kind of ambivalent about the number of points you need to spend. Um, but they're okay. There's a few times in... Uh, They'll let you know that the defender needs to have this many more points or this many less points. Um, but we aren't talking anything extravagant. It's like 250 points here, 500 points there. Uh, the mission special rules are all pretty interesting and I think can be pulled out and used in separate games with very little headache. Obviously, the Hive World ones look like they've got the most use. But again, there's one with this giant wall that just you could build out of Games Workshop scenery, but it would be a lot of money for a thing you'd use once. Um, so once you start cutting through all that, you're getting like, you know, 12 or so missions that are going to be really regularly useful. Um, and yeah, that's that. Um, I'm not going to go through and read every single mission because there's 36 missions and reading missions are awfully dry. I've been trying to do it for these narrative missions at the start of shows, but I haven't got a good formula for it yet. Um, but yeah, I, so I think that there's going to be a place to use these uh, Echoes of Glory missions in the games. I know I'm excited about stealing a lot of them for use in narrative events, um, where I'm not as worried about having to mix up tables because I can have a lot more tables. If I run an event with six tables, I'm probably going to be able to use at least one of these missions on every table at some point. It's going to be okay. Um, yeah, so it's just, it's a bit of a letdown, um, really. I mean, especially as staring across my deck is the open war cards, uh, which I think I need to talk about because they're the reason this book feels so flat to me. Um, before I go, the last couple of pages obviously have the, they have some big pictures of a giant, uh, battle sequence they've got at Warhammer World now, the Gates of Nikon City. It looks gorgeous. And I can't wait to see it in real life when I finally get to go to Warhammer World. Um, and I'm glad it's there. And then there are some pictures of the uh, Knights Megara and Knight Strix at the back, which obviously caused the fuss on the internet when the book came out. Um, it's all pretty good. Um, and that's really the book. I've sort of talked about the story in passing here and there. Um, yeah. It's a very, as I said, a very mixed book. And I'm not that happy with it overall um it's not the worst games workshop product i brought by any means and it's going to find use it's going to find a lot of use when i start planning next year's iron halo but i think the regular player will struggle to find good use for it okay so a release at the same time as this book were the open war cards, the open engine war cards. Very similar to the ones they do for all their other game systems. The problem was these were a limited run, and if you're listening to this now, a few weeks later, you're going to really struggle to get your hands on them. But I'm going to run over what they are, I'm going to be using them in my games, and if you're ever able to find them, it's well worth it. If these rules from these cards have been printed in the book, I think the legacies of Echoes of Glory would be much better. Echoes of Glory wish they could be this card deck. I'm going to quickly go over it. So the open war card deck is the simple principle games which we've been doing now for quite a few years. Within the card deck itself, there are many sub-decks. You draw one card for deployment. They have nine different deployment maps, many of which are really interesting. Um, they aren't your standard deployment styles. There's some really interesting deployments in there, um, but none utterly broken. Um, I'm definitely going to be reusing these in the Iron Halo coming up. You then draw a card for the planet you're playing on, which is interesting. There are 10 possible planets, and each planet comes with a special rule that you apply to the battlefield. Really simple. Some of these benefits give you bonuses, some give you negatives. Some, the battlefield's going to fall apart around you, others are just going to be like, yeah, you drain heat quicker, which is nice. A nice variation to it, and um, it's nice to have a pretty good set of battlefield effects, which are easy to use. The text... None of the rules are really that long, perhaps the exception of Shattered World. Uh, you then draw a card for Vox Screech, again, with a small... Each card has a nice bit of artwork on it and a rules about what's going on. Uh, this sort of stuff, I reckon the battlefield effects is your optional part of the deck. It doesn't say so in the, um, the cards as you're going through it. 
Um, you don't have to use these uh, in a lot of the other open war decks. It's always like the battlefield effects cards or whatever they're called are optional if the players want an extra variation in the game. And these have things like the Vox Screech card, which is the one sitting on top of my deck here. It says that whenever a Machine Spirit symbol is rolled, the reactor dice, on the reactor dice, no command check is made, the Machine Spirit is always awakened. Uh, others like Thick Smog, that means, you know, you can't see as easily across the battlefield. Others have Lightning Strikes and other fun stuff. Um, it's really good. Uh, will add a lot of flavor to games. I use a lot of these effects uh, stolen from narrative missions at the Iron Halo. And they went down as a really interesting way to make the game varied. And then finally, there are the mission objectives. There are six primary mission objectives. You just draw from the deck and both players are playing to that primary mission objective. Both players know what the mission is and it's just out there in the front. Uh, to mix the game up a bit, there is then a deck of 12 cards that you draw two to... You just hand draw, draw out two cards to both players who are playing. The players get to pick one objective in secret. And... Um, it's played out. I say in secret, I don't mean fully in secret. I mean you actually just make the choice in secret, but you reveal it to your opponent. Uh, but easily, easily that secondary objective can be one you actually conceal from your opponent for the entire game. If you choose to play games of Titanicus like that, which I know some people do and some people don't, is a dividing issue in the community. Um, yeah, it's just nice. And I think those would have been really easy tables from really easy blocks of text to throw in the back of this book. Probably taken another 10 or so pages. Which would have taken them over their limit, but, you know, if you got rid of the night households, or you trimmed down some of the narrative missions, or even just dropped a bit of the story that was a little bit weak anyway, you could have put the rules from these cards in the book as tables, and then people would have reason to buy the book more, because these are going to be really good. They don't, replay the they don't replace the match play system, because they aren't fair and balanced, like the match play system pretends it is. But they do create a really good play experience and creating various ways to play is ways to enhance the game. And it's going to be a shame that these cards are now gone. They're artifacts of a time that was in the past, even if that past was last weekend. Um, I'm going to be using the cards in my games. I'm going to be probably using these cards to inspire Iron Halo 2021 and any other future events I ran. Um, and that's that. So... Um, I think I'm going to get to wrap up. And that brings us to the end of everything. I've reviewed both the cards and the books now, and you've heard my opinions, so I'm not going to repeat myself. Overall, I'm happy that we're still getting more Titanicus content. I know I was a bit... I've been very dismissive of the book, but don't get me wrong. I really like the fact that Titanicus is still getting solid content from Games Workshop Prime. I look at what happened to what's happening to Aeronautica at the moment and their like core products are moving into Forge World only, like the cow assets. And I worry for the game. I worry that it's on its way out. I don't worry about that for Titanicus. I know Titanicus is going strong. The community's great. The game's great. And I look forward to seeing what Games Workshop brings out next. As for this show, we have four weeks left before the end of season two of the God Engine cast. I have two topics to explore, both of which are going to be two-part episodes. We're going to do a two-part review of the Legio Volpa and a two-part review of the Legio Incarnum. Next week's episode should be the start of my review of the Legio Volpa. And then depending when I get conversations with hobbyists sorted, we'll see whether it ends up being the review of the um, Legio Incarnum before we go into the final two. Now, I am working on a fifth episode, a potential episode, which will be my year review. Um, I've labelled it in my notes as the Christmas special, but we'll see exactly how it comes out. Uh, I have a feature on my app that allows people to call in and leave me voicemail. I'm going to republish the link here in a day or so on social media. I would love it if people could leave me some comments and reviews on these voicemail that I could play during the Christmas special. I'm not going to be able to get everyone onto the podcast and have a giant round table. Uh, I'd love to. I'm going to see what I can do, but... If you've got something to say, let me know, and we'll just have a few notes. Send holiday message, spirits of cheer, and all that stuff. 2020 has been a terrible year, but it's almost behind us, and then we just have the fun of 2021 to look forward to, and uh, who knows what that will bring. Um, hopefully something better, but the way our look's been going, uh, we can't guarantee it. But 
I'll still be here putting out Titanicus content. So, anyway. Until next week, I'll uh, wish you all good fortune. Thank you again for listening to another episode of the God Engine Cast, a podcast dedicated to discussing the Adeptus Titanicus game produced by Games Workshop. This show was written, recorded, and edited by Martin Emery. This podcast is completely unofficial and no way endorsed by Games Workshop Limited. No challenge to any trademarks or copyrights have been intended. All rights are reserved by the respective owners. If you have any questions of the show, please email me at god.engine.cast.gmail.com or reach out to me through Twitter or Facebook. So until next time, I wish you all good fortune. Thank you.